You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, we're really glad you're here with us. We want to welcome everybody at home watching online and everybody here in the room live as well. For those of you who don't know, we usually see between 600 and 700 views per week. We don't know how many that means. So there's double to triple the number that will be here in the room will actually be at home throughout the week, especially during this series. And so what we've been doing in the series, for those of you who are new and visiting with us, is uh, we've been taking four subjects that we think, by and large, we call them elephants in the church, you know, like elephants in the room kind of thing. Like, they're big topics, and nobody's talking about them, but we think they need to be talked about. And they're near and dear to the heart of God. And we want to talk about all the things that are near and dear to the heart of God, not just the ones that make us feel good. And so that's what the series is. And I've been really, really anxious throughout this series. Those of you who've been here at all, you know that. And the reason I'm anxious is not because I don't know what God's word says. And people keep trying to encourage me, like, just preach the word, pastor. Like, I know that. That's what I'm going to do. The reason I'm anxious is because all of these subjects are hard. In all of these subjects, Satan has tried to take truth, twist it, plants it in our heart and give us some great rationale as to why it isn't real and why we've got our thinking wrong or right, depending on which side of the line you're on, about it. And so as we're coming right at Satan's territory, what's going to happen is there's going to be something in us that rises up and says, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. And this message, perhaps more than any other, next week maybe, is going to be like that. Because depending on where you fall, you're either going to be tempted to amen everything I say, and it's going to be preaching to the choir, and honestly, that's not helpful. If you already know everything I'm going to say, that's not really all that helpful. But if you're on the other side of the conversation and you don't agree with everything I'm going to say, you're going to be quick to tune me out. And so what I wanted to do is not at all, at all, in any way, make this a political conversation. This is not a political conversation. I've cut all the things from my message that would point to politics. What I want to simply do is start in the beginning at God's word, walk to the end, and do that in roughly minutes today. And try to look at what God's word says about the value of life, your life, all life. What does it mean? We're going to take a very specific angle, and then at the end, we're going to make some very specific applications, okay? So what I've said throughout this series is we're talking, it's like, it's like a poem. Like, we're talking about the central issue here, but if we were to take another hour, you could flesh that out, you could flesh that out, you could flesh that out. It's like a tree that has these roots that go in different directions, and that's true, but we're going to stay focused on the core issue today, The value of life. Let's start in the very, very beginning then. If we will, watch out for that. Let's start at the very beginning. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. I actually read this. I think it was the first week on racism. Here's what God's word says. So God created mankind, that's all of us, male and female, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're gonna keep coming back to this throughout our teaching at Kingsway, throughout all the time that I'm here, because that's the root of everything we need to know. But I want you to get this. You, if you get nothing else today, if something else I say in the next five or 10 minutes makes you want to get up and leave and tune out or turn off the the iPad or the TV, don't miss this. All life is special and precious because it was made in God's image. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. And then we see this throughout the New Testament from Genesis to Revelation. This is a key teaching of anything that God's word says. You are valuable to God. You are valuable to God. All life is valuable to God. But notice what else God said at the very next verse, verse 28. God blessed them. This is literally just Adam and Eve. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, we take this one separately real quick. Fill the earth and subdue it. Basically, 
You're gonna multiply the image of God and you're gonna work the world. Like the world is your playground. Have fun, God gave it to you, it's a gift. It wasn't even hard work. Work today is hard because it's up under sin and it's got all kinds of things mixed up in it, greed and image and all these other things. But be fruitful and increase in number. The goal is that Adam and Eve would take the image of God and they would make more image bearers and fill the earth with image bearers of God. That was God's goal from the very beginning. That's the whole reason he did this. I mean, it's this amazing playground for you to have fun in and enjoy together forever. And I'm gonna make lots of people who will enjoy it together forever. But God gave them a warning. See, the very first thing God did is he built a garden and he put Adam in the garden. Then he put Adam to sleep and he pulled Eve out of Adam and he made Adam and Eve in a garden. They didn't do any of the early work. And he told them, enjoy this place. There's lots of trees. There's lots of fruit. There's lots of vegetables, whatever. Enjoy this place. But there's one rule I'm gonna give you. Don't eat of the tree. Here it is. Genesis chapter two, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from it, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's hang out here for a second. Uh, if you ever do the Bible Project, I referenced them last week. It's a, it's a great ministry that is like Bible teachings. They did this whole series, I think it was this past year, on the, the two trees. And they did this whole series on trees in general. But they talked about the, the two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one you were to eat of all day long, and the other one you were not to eat of at all. And they represent throughout the Bible these ideas of choices to do good or bad, to do right or wrong. Now, this is important because God says, when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And in the Hebrew, it's actually redundant. It actually repeats itself. It's like saying, in dying death. And the whole idea is, in the Hebrew, they didn't have the language that we have in English. It's a different language. It's an ancient language, too. So when they wanted to really emphasize something, they would multiply it. This is also why you see throughout the Old Testament the phrase, holy, 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 to describe God. Because he's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And the whole idea is when you multiply it three times, they're saying God is holy unlike anything else in all of the world. And here in the Hebrew, in the English, we say you will certainly die. And that's true. But in the Hebrew, it's doubled for emphasis. In dying, you will die. Like, this is bad news. And everything is fine for a while. We don't know how long a while is. A day, a week, a month, a year, 20 years, 100 years, we don't really know. We just know that Adam and Eve enjoyed the garden, enjoyed the fruit, enjoyed each other, they had not yet multiplied. But then one day, it says a serpent came along. And we know, because of the rest of Scripture, the serpent is literally Satan. And he comes along and he tempts them. And the serpent says to Eve this very powerful thing in Genesis 3, verse 4. He says, you'll not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, notice Satan here is literally twisting the words of God in order to convince Eve that God does not have her best intentions in mind. For the rest of everything I'm going to say today, you have to know this one thing. Satan wants to twist the truth so that you stop believing that God is for you, that he is with you, and that even in Jesus Christ, he is in you. 
Because once you start to doubt God, and once you start to doubt what God says, you'll start to feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. You'll start to feel like you have to make everything happen. You'll start to feel like you alone bear a load or a responsibility and that God is not a partner in life with you. It leads to unbelievable despair and depression. It leads to anxiety. It leads to working really hard and not necessarily seeing the fruit of that work. It leads to feeling like you've never measured up and you're never good enough. It leads to hopelessness. But when you really truly trust everything that God has said, I'm with you. I'm for you. The things that I say are acceptable are acceptable because they're good. The things that I say don't do, I say don't do because they're evil. Choose life. Choose life. Well, as we know, Satan does tempt Eve and Eve takes the fruit and she eats. And then she hands it to Adam and he eats. Now, what's fascinating is throughout the scriptures, and especially when we get to like Romans chapter four and five, Adam is held accountable for this moment, even though Eve sinned first. And part of the reason that's true is because God made Adam first and Adam was supposed to be the protector of Eve. But Adam sat passively by while Eve did the thing that God, the one thing God told them not to do. And he kept his mouth shut. And he did not protect his wife. He did not stand up, come between her and the serpent and say, uh-uh, I don't know who you think you are, but God said no. Instead, he just sat passively. And then when she sinned, he got jealous of what she was experiencing and decided, I want some too. And so in that, Adam double sinned. And we're told that Adam is held accountable. Then in the same way one man sinned, all of us have now sinned. And all sin means is to disobey God. It literally means to miss the mark. But it means to not follow through on the things that God has asked us to do. Now, let's talk about this for a second. When death came, and I don't want to spend a long time theologically on this, but when death came, what exactly was happening in that moment? What does it mean that death would now come? In dying, you would die. You would certainly die. What does all of it mean? Well, the traditional understanding is that this would now bring about a judgment day, a day where we would stand before God and we would not measure up. We would not have hit the mark. That's what the word sin means. Hamartia literally means to hit the mark. It's a picture of a guy shooting a bow and arrow, and instead of hitting the target, he aims at some other target, or he can't seem to hit the mark. He seems to miss over and over and over again. That's what the word sin literally means. And we miss the mark, so we stand before God on judgment day, and we miss the mark. But what do we do with that? Now what? Well, there's been a lot of theological discussion, and we don't really have time to delve into all of it right now. But it appears that Adam and Eve weren't going to die prior to this. Or if they were going to die, they certainly were going to go into some sort of immediate step into heaven. There was not going to be any judgment day because there was nothing to be judged about. They were good and innocent and pure and faithful. But that's not what happened. So when sin enters the world, everything starts to go downhill very, very, very quickly. In fact, if you read the rest of Genesis 2 and 3 there, where where God unpacks all of this, when he unpacks it for them, he says things like, Eve, now in childbearing, you will have pain. And it's made me wonder, and I've said this before, what would it have been like to have childbearing and not pain? 
You ever watched an animal give birth? I mean, unless there's a problem. I wouldn't say it's painless, but it's fairly easy. When a horse gives birth, I've seen it on TV. I don't necessarily want to see it up close. (laughs) But they move on together. The horse falls out and gets up, starts to walk and stumble, and the two just kind of move on about their day. There's something about women when they give birth that's painful. But I think it's even deeper than that. I don't think it's just the physical pain. I do think it's the physical pain. I think because there's something about a mama and her children, right? It's just near and dear to her heart. It's just special. And I think there's part of what God is saying is now because sin has entered the world, when, when you bear a child, there will be pain. How many mothers and grandmothers in here have ached for their children and the choices that they're making in life? And you hurt. And God says to Eve, you're gonna long for the authority that Adam has over you. In other words, God created it that there was a structure to things, that Adam would be the leader, but since Adam didn't lead, you're gonna always have this fighting between you. You're gonna long to have his position of authority that God gave him, but also I think there's more to it than that. Have you noticed how much evil in the world has come from the ways that Adams treat Eves? Have you noticed that? Now, don't get me wrong, men and women, I am not saying that Eves haven't done some evil because every time I make the point that I just made, I get an email or a text or something from somebody who says, you have no idea how much hurt that has been done to me by a woman. I get it. We live in a sinful world. My point is, look how many abusive power structures exist in the world where men take their strength, their might, their power, and they abuse it and hold it over, especially women. And we saw it in the video that introduced the sermon today. We live in a dark world. And you could explain almost all these things by going back to these very texts and saying, what happened? What went wrong? And what we need to see in the middle of this is there's an enemy. His name is Satan. That's what we call him. And he wants to... Steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus says in John 10.10. If you go look up John 10.10, he uses the word the thief, but the thief is specifically talking about him. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal. So all of his twisting of truths, all of his lies, all of the things that he's trying to convince us are true or real, they're just ways for him to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he's trying to do. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not going to give up anything for you. If he does anything for you, it's only to bless you so he can lead you down a path of darkness and death and destruction. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to kill your family. Not only that, but he wants to kill every family on the face of the planet. And he has so many plans that are perfectly concocted to bring this reality about. I wish I had 10 more minutes to just go on that point. But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit plans into your heart. Perhaps some of the lies of Satan that you have begun to believe in yourself. Let's stay on this linear thought for a moment. What happened as a byproduct of Adam and Eve's sin is that death came into the world. And what we see throughout the scriptures is God is a God of life and redemption. He's always trying to bring life back into the world. Now, yes, and I don't have time to dig into this too much. Yes, there's a flood where God wipes all life except for Noah's family off the earth. You say, well, how can you say, Pastor Matt, that God's trying to bring life and redemption back into the world? Well, if you go read that story in Genesis chapter six, you will see that the world has become so dark, so evil, that God literally, it says, he grieved that he even made the place. He is so broken at how death and destruction is ruining his beautiful creation. 
that he wipes it out and starts over. Even in the wiping out, he's revealing his heart and his love towards mankind. He could have wiped out Noah's family too and said, forget it, I'm done with this. But that's not who he is. He's a God who desires and longs to see life grow and flourish. But it doesn't last real long. So when God begins again with the nation of Israel and he calls Abraham to follow him and to seek after him, and later on down the road, a guy named Moses, he begins to, in what we call the law, especially Deuteronomy and Leviticus, those two books, which don't get me wrong, they're hard to read. I was just at lunch with uh, John Caldwell, our former senior pastor this week, and we, he was joking about when he went to Bible college and had to take a class on Deuteronomy. I can't remember if it was a master or doctorate, but he, he told the professor, he said, am I allowed to just be honest that um, I don't love the book of Deuteronomy? And I thought, man, somebody needs to say, it. Like, it's hard to read, okay? But when you dig into the laws, you see these crazy rules, but all of these rules are intended to help us understand just how much God loves life. Like, a woman becomes unclean once a month and she can't come into the temple, and a man becomes unclean, he can, in the middle of the night, and he can't come into the temple. I'm being really vague because there's kids watching, and the reason that's the case is because God loves life, and those two events in the human flesh our loss of life, and God loves life. Are you with me? I hope you're with me. I'm not getting a lot of head nods. And there's all these weird laws, but they're all in pointing to how much God treasures and values life because human life, not the dog, not the cat, not the chipmunk, not the otter, and if anything, we're gonna be close to be an otter to the heart of God. But none of them are made in his image. Only human life. And so Satan has a particular hatred for human life. So when God starts this nation, Israel, and he gives them all these rules and laws, some of the things that he says to them is, is have nothing to do with the other nations and their gods and their ways. Follow me and trust me and do what I ask you to do and I'll take care of you and I'll bless you and I'll provide for you. Even when it's hard, I'm gonna show up. That's what he was teaching them in the desert in Exodus. But I want you to see something particular that God says and how this portrays to this conversation about life today. This comes out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse two. God says this, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him and prostituting themselves to Molech. And you may be going, what in the world just happened? Molech is an ancient idol of the foreign nations, specifically the Ammonites and the Canaanites. The Ammonites and the Canaanites, I think I said that wrong. Now, here's a picture of what Molech kind of would have looked like. This isn't foolproof. Obviously, this is an artist's rendering. But there was this large bronze statue here and they would light fires around it, and especially even here, this one doesn't show it, here in the front, and so that the bronze would heat up to red hot. 
And one of the ways that you worship Molech is you literally take a baby and you place the baby onto the burning hot hands of the statue. And you leave it there until it dies. Sometimes they would actually take babies and throw them into the fire that would burn in front of the altar and just kind of roll them into it. And God is telling the Israelites, I'm making you a people, but do not look at those other nations and think that what they have is good. No matter how hard it gets for you, I will let you go through testings at times, but do not in the testing turn from me and turn to them. But it happened over and over and over again. Solomon began to marry women from these other nations, and as he did, we're told he actually adopted their gods, and one of the gods he adopted was the very god Molech. In fact, he built shrines in Israel to Molech, so much so that as you go down through history, King Manasseh and King Ahaz, two evil kings, you can read about them in First and Second Kings, two evil kings in Israel, they were Israel's kings, sacrificed their own children to Molech. This is a major problem. And it's a major problem because God has already said, all life is valuable to me, all life. I love humans. They're made in my image. They are special. They are not like the other animals. They are not like the trees. They are not like the earth. They are valuable and adored. And it doesn't matter if they're male or female or how young or old or how they're made. They're special. They may have been born blind. I don't care. They may have been born deaf. Not a problem for me. They may have something else going on in the moment they were born. They are special and precious, not because what man sees on the outside, because what God sees when he looks at them and he sees their profound value. But notice in the passage I read you in Leviticus how serious God is. If somebody dares to worship Molech, and this means offering your children, you take that person out and hold them accountable. Do not ignore that. But then he goes even stronger, and he says, and if you see somebody do that, and you do nothing about it, I will hold you accountable for doing nothing about it. You cannot keep your mouth shut. This is such a big deal. God says, if you do that, I will turn my face away from you. Theologically, what went wrong in the garden is that God turned his face away from Adam and Eve and said, you don't want to follow me, that go ahead and have unbridled sin. Have it. Now, he didn't leave it there. He kept pursuing and chasing. He kept coming after. But he said, you want to have a life without me? Have it, but then get everything that comes with it. Don't get my blessing. Don't get my protection. Don't get my provision. Go ahead. Have the life you want to have. And it didn't go well. And it doesn't go well in Israel. After they did this, God sent in Nebuchadnezzar to discipline Israel. In fact, we see this throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah. One of the major reasons that God did this is because the people have done this. Let me just show you one text. This comes out of Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30. God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Tophet in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Two things real quick. Number one, this part here in the yellow. To burn their sons and daughters in the fire, that's pointing to Molech, what I just showed you. God is saying, my people have so turned away from me and stopped trusting me that they simply take on this activity of killing babies 
Not only did I never ask him to do that, that idea would never enter my mind. I would never even think of such an evil thing. Why in the world would you trust this path instead of me? Why in the world would you do that? But then notice this, and this is huge, okay? This is where like it starts to, to come down from like theoretical theology land or the rubber meets the road. They did this in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben-Hinnom in the New Testament is called Gehenna. It literally, Gehenna is a Greek word that means the Valley of Hinnom. And it's the word we translate as hell. Now you're like, I'm lost. Stick with me. So in the New Testament, we're hundreds of years past Jeremiah. Jesus comes along and there's a place outside the city where there's trash dump and it burns day and night. And it said that the worm rots there. It stinks. Oh, it's terrible. But not only is it a trash dump, it's literally the valley where the shrine to Molech was built. So Jesus shows up and he points to a literal place, Gehenna. We lose the whole thing that Jesus is saying because we put it in the word hell and we think it's like this metaphoric place that's gonna exist somehow at the end and it might, but Jesus is pointing to a literal trash dump that has a fire that burns constantly. And this valley the valley of Ben-Hinnom is known as the place where Israel prostituted itself with these false gods by offering its children as a sacrifice. I hope that makes some sense. Jesus is pointing to the most evil, dark, vile thing that he can point to in his day and say, listen, that place is what it's gonna be like to be separated from God forever. Let me just show you one text where we see this. And then I want you to see the context of that text. Mark chapter nine, verse 42. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone. It's a massive, massive piece of like rock or concrete that was used for milling and grinding up Corn and cornmeal, things like that. Massive, heavy. Jesus says, if you were to hurt a child or to lead a child away from me, you would be better off to have one of these tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to stand before me on the last day. God has a special wrath, a special fury for those who hurt children. Are you with me? And then Jesus goes on and he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into Gehenna where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. I don't know if any of this is landing or making any sense whatsoever. But God loves life. And God loves 
especially loves children. And God especially loves babies. I've prayed that God would not let me lose it today, but it probably isn't gonna happen. About a month ago in preparing for the sermon, I just started Googling. And I accidentally stumbled upon a video that had a pile of baby parts from abortions. And you could see this this tiny arm with these little fingers. It's detached from a body. I couldn't finish the video. I couldn't finish it. And I kept thinking to myself, how can we be so evil? We don't think that's a human. I don't understand. I don't understand. And I read countless articles and journal entries of doctors and nurses telling the stories of what happens when we abort. And I've heard the word abortion. I had no idea what was happening. I'm telling you, you don't want to read them. You don't. And I can't talk about it without crying. And I'm crying for one, the loss of life. And I'm crying out of fear of my God. I am so afraid that there are some who are going to watch this message and think I'm making a political statement. I'm not. That's why I wanted to anchor this in the Bible, but I am terrified that some people watching this will stand before God one day and not care, and not care. And God is so clear on what he is saying. It is not unclear. My friends, Whatever it costs you on this earth, whatever it costs you, value all human life. Now, we're trying to stay focused. (laughs) And this isn't today's message, so I'm gonna throw a grenade in the room and I'm gonna walk away and then you can decide whether to jump on the grenade or, or, or walk away too. There are strong implications for what I just said and some of you who love your guns. I just made a bunch of people mad. There's strong implications for what I just said and human trafficking is going on all over the world. Some of you addicted to online things are feeding that. There are strong connections to everything that I just said and foster care and adoption. There are strong connections to what I just said in abuse, physical abuse. You're made in his image. You're precious and adored and valued. So let me give you three quick ways that you can respond to this message. Number one, I want you to be like the early church and condemn abortion, infanticide, and murder, and murder. Let me make some quick applications, because our time is short. 
When it comes to abortion, I want you to see this. I'm gonna go out of order on the slides. I'm telling Danny up top. But I want you to see this. In the, in the first couple centuries, as pastors would go around and try to spread the gospel, nobody had copies of the Bible. So they wrote down something called the Didache. And the Didache is a debated text, but it's, it's early Christian teachings on how do we summarize the Old and New Testament so that people know how to live now that they believe in Jesus. And I wanna show you two parts of the Didache. This is Didache 1.1. It literally says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. That's how the teaching begins. When you get to Dadake 2.2, it says this, thou shalt not murder. And then if you notice down at the underlying point, uh, the very next thing that it says is, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. Again, this is just early Christian teaching. What I find fascinating is for the last 2,000 years, the church has said this over and over and over and over and over again. The church has said, if you want to follow after Jesus, this is what you have to believe. All murder is wrong. Abortion, wrong. And infanticide, that's killing a child after it's born, wrong. That's what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. Why is that though? I want to show you a passage that is so eye-opening. It has a million applications for today, and I'm going to make like two fast ones. Psalm 139, verse 13, says this. I believe this is David writing this. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. As David is pondering life, he's going, God, you've always known about me. When I was in the secret place, like before mommy and daddy even know that a baby's in there, you know what I'm talking about for those of you who've been there? Like, I don't know, something's weird. I just don't feel right lately. Like before you had any clue, when he was in the unknown place, like God already saw and was forming him. And not only that, but all of the days of his life were laid out in God's mind. I have this beautiful plan for you, son, daughter. I know exactly what I want to do with you. Which is why life is so precious. Which is why we hate suicide. Suicide is this belief that nothing about what I'm facing right now is redeemable. Nothing about what I'm going through, God can fix. But God is in the business of redemption. He's in the business of fixing. It's what he wants to do. So we stand against murder. And I don't care if that murder, I should say that different. I care, that's what I'm saying. I care deeply if that murder is of a police officer who's been hunted down. And I care deeply if it's a black man or woman who was beaten and thrown to the ground or had their, a knee stuck on their neck. We as Christians must say both of these things are evil and not of God. All of them. But we don't only stand against evil. We have to do something about it. Which is why my second piece of advice is accept that God has a plan for your life. Psalm 139 says, all the days of my life were ordained before me. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that God has a purpose for your life? And if you're pregnant right now, your baby's life. When we went through our adoption classes, There was this young girl that they brought up to speak 
She was Middle Eastern. I believe she was Indian. I don't remember exactly. But she pulled back her hair and showed us the scars from the forceps on her head. She was found alive in a pile of babies. And she was being raised by an amazing American family who had adopted like six kids. And she was giving her testimony. And I was just blown away. She was like 17, 18 at the time. So intelligent, so much life, so much vibrancy. God has a plan for her. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for whatever's growing inside you. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. I know it feels like the end is coming if you got pregnant and you weren't planning on it. I know it seems terrifying to tell your mom or your dad or your pastor, and there is legitimacy because there are some evil people in this world. There are. But you are not alone. You are not alone. And so listen, church, this leads to my third point. We have to invest in the harsh realities of this broken world. We have to. That means that while we stand against things like murder, murder, murder and abortion and infanticide, we also stand with life. That means some of us are gonna have to choose not to go on the fancy vacations and buy the bigger house. We might even have to downsize in order to fund people who are getting adoptions and foster care. I know a couple families going through the process right now. I know a few families who have finished the process right now in our church. That means coming alongside things like sheltering wings and Wheeler and wherever there are Christians trying to bring value of human life. It means us personally saying, I can't do everything, but I can do something. I can do something. What can you do? In the, the, the first century, and, and I promise I'm almost done, but in the first century, the, the Romans actually had a law that said if a child was born with any kind of deformity or if you were too poor and you couldn't afford a child, you could take the child outside and basically leave it to fate. And there were a couple of different ways they do this, but there was actually this one particular road, uh, this, this stone wall where they would just come and set the babies. And the Christians, and also, by the way, some of the Jews, but they believed this because of what God's word said. They would get up early in the morning and go walking along the wall to see if any babies were left there. They would take them in and raise them on their own. They would assume the financial burden and responsibility of what it cost the early church was being what we call subversive. Now, later, we actually start seeing Christians who come into power and influence actually writing about this. And what's crazy is we see Constantine, after he converts, starting to slowly start to change. But it's actually not until the emperor after him that anything even begins to change. That's 300 years after Jesus. It took a long time for Christians to live subversively in the cultural norms for change to occur. But it took the Christians stepping up and saying, I don't care what it costs. I will show value. Many of those children who were left there, had some sort of physical birth abnormality, something that that person said, this person's not good enough. And if you go read like Plato's and Socrates' writings, they say the only way you have value is if you can contribute something to society. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you have value because you're human. This is why special needs is so special to God's heart. And when you take on these roles, I'm telling you, you will have hard days, but you will not go at it alone.
a couple weeks ago, I sat down with um, an amazing uh, OBG doc from our church, Miriam Krober. And I sat down with a lady named Kelly Williams who has a ministry called Table Ministries. And we just talked. Right now, we just released that content as well as a lot of other articles and things at kingswaychurch.org backslash the loop. You can go find all of it there. But I highly recommend you go on and listen to it. Especially Kelly's testimony, she got pregnant as a teenager because life was miserable and some things happened. And she gave birth to her child and she tells her story and he's now a pastor on the south side of Indianapolis. And every story isn't gonna always end up with that type of ending. There's plenty of pain in the story. But I encourage you to go listen and know there's redemption. And let me just close with one last thing. It's the story of hope you need to know. Years ago, I was sitting in a men's group and one of the things I do in my men's group is I, I, I encourage open confession of sin to bring light into the darkness because wherever there's darkness in our life, Satan wins. And I had no idea, but one particular day, one gentleman in the group shared that years ago, he and his spouse had had an abortion. Great Christian couple, and if you knew him, you'd be like, wow, really? And he was broken, and he wept. And I loved what happened next is the men in that group surrounded him and laid their hands on him and prayed for him. Many of them, without me doing anything, texted and called and followed up and said, how are you doing? We still love you. Thank you for sharing that with us. What I want you to know in that is we stand against abortion, but if you had an abortion, we stand for you. The whole reason we were against it is because we value all life. It's not because we hate you. It's not because we condemn you. It's the exact opposite. We love you. We love you. We love you. And we want you to know the grace in Jesus Christ that has so radically transformed our lives that without him, none of us would have hope. And we want you to know that hope. So listen, today, if you're watching this and you just feel bad about yourself, I would encourage you, don't feel bad, change. The Bible calls us repentance. Turn to God and find life because he loves you so very much. He wants to bring you into a right relationship with himself. He wants to redeem whatever evil and suffering and pain you've gone through because he loves you. What I wanna do is just pray over us and ask for God to use this message to convict us and whatever that means as we go forward. Let's pray. Oh, Father, my heart is so heavy right now. I'm heavy for those in this room who have felt the sting of an unwanted pregnancy and faced the terrifying reality of what that means. God, this world is an evil place and all the evil ways that that could have even come about, God, my heart breaks that you watch this day after day after day. Oh God, oh God, come back. Send Jesus soon. End the suffering, Father. But if you decide to wait another day or another thousand years, Jesus, I just pray that you would move in us, stir in us. Let us be a people who reflect your honor and your glory to this world. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are feeling overwhelmed right now. God, stir in them. 
a heart of repentance to turn towards you and receive your forgiveness, receive your mercy and grace. You forgave Paul for murdering Christians. You could forgive us for anything. Jesus, hanging on the cross, looked down at those crucifying and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God, so many of us, we don't know what we're doing and we make stupid decisions. God, forgive us. Forgive us. But God, bring about change. Rise up right now in this room, families who are going to adopt, families who are going to get into the foster system and help and serve and bless them, give them all they need. Raise up families in the church right now who are saying, we can't do that, but they're gonna come alongside them, maybe financially or maybe in preparing meals or maybe in helping in some way or another. God, raise up a generous heart in our church, a heart towards this world that says, we're gonna stand against evil, we're gonna stand for life and whatever it costs. And God, use us in our small little corner of the world to do that thing that only you can do. God, we stand here surrendered, needing you, In Jesus' name, 